ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. Hey guys, this week I sit down with Joel Smith. Joel is the BHA Director of Public Outreach in Texas and also owns Foundation Strength Training. We get into his Utah elk hunt, hunting Texas, his approach to fitness training for himself and his clients. Enjoy the episode. So we're on with Joel Smith of Foundation Strength Training. Joel, good evening, man. Appreciate you joining me. Appreciate being here. Absolutely, man. So, uh, you know, we don't pull any punches on our intro. <laughs> Why don't we jump right into it, man? Give us a little bit of background on yourself. Uh, well, I'm 39. I have been hunting, uh, for nine years or so. I mean, I've always been, I grew up fishing with my granddad, uh, my dad, um, hunting up until I was like an adult. Um, so I've always been sort of an, an enthusiast of firearms, you know, target shooting and whatnot, uh, but just never translated to going out into the field and, uh, you know, killing animals or harvesting meat. So, uh, for whatever reason, it took me until I was, uh, 31 years old to, to make that happen. So one, it would be odd for a guy that lives in Texas, not to be a gun enthusiast (laughs) (laughs) and two. So what, what do you think drew you into that? Um, well, you know, I, I developed some friendships with people over a period of time who were hunters, uh, just, you know, over, over a period of time, I, um, I guess when I was 30, I bought my, my own rifle. Um, and then the next year is the first opportunity that arose where I got an invite to go with these guys out to their, uh, you know, hunting property and, and, uh, and go whitetail hunting. And, uh, you know, from the first time I sat in a blind, um, uh, I was in love with it, you know, how can you not be right? Uh, 
so you, you kind of bring up something there, right? Because that first experience. So, the, and I don't know if it's a misconception or not, right? I've hunted Texas. I've never hunted Texas public land, um, but Texas is massive. So you start talking about, you know, public lands in Texas, I think is something around 2%, which is huge if you look at, you know, the amount of uh, land available. But my understanding is a lot of that hunting is like, you know, deep South Texas, as they call it, when you get to those big public land plots, is that a misconception or is that, you know? You know, there, there are, in terms of public land opportunities, there are spots all over the place. So it's sort of a mix. I mean, the, it, it, one of the soapbox things that I, that I sort of fall into about hunting public land in Texas is that is the, that misnomer that people have about the fact that we don't have any public land in Texas to hunt on. And while the percentage is small, it's like sub 5%, like 4% or something. That's a million acres. Right. Texas is huge. Hunting property. And you know, uh, there, there, a giant piece of that is the Sam Houston National Forest, which is like an hour and a half north of the Houston area. Um, but once you pull that out of the equation, I mean, there's places that you can openly hunt, um, you know, all scattered all over the state, and that's open access with white-tailed deer. I mean, there's a, a bunch of places that you can hunt hogs year-round um, on public land. You know the the means of take is is limited in some cases. You know, it, depending on the season, um, you can only use archery equipment or a shotgun. Um, but you know, bird hunting, waterfowl, uh, upland birds. You know, it's the the if if you're creative and you pay your forty eight dollars for the annual public land stamp, um, you know, they'll send you a book with that's 200 pages deep of places that you can go and, and, uh, you know, find a way to hunt. Right. And then what about like, you know, your non-native or your exotic species that get off of those properties. And I, you know, there's, there's several species that I know of that are kind of, you know, free roaming or wild at this point or feral rather. Sure. You can, I mean, there are a lot of places, especially around the hill country area where you can find, uh, axis deer, uh, there are drawn hunts where you can go hunt Nilgai. Um, I've never done that, but I put in for the, <laughs> put in for it every year. <laughs> I haven't been pulled yet. What, you know what I, uh, what I got to shoot when I was there. So we used to go to a property is when my boy wasn't old enough to pull a big game tag here. Um, but black buck antelope, I mean, they are, and this is, you're talking, uh, let's call it plus or minus 10 years ago. And they were. It's an exaggeration, of course, but they were as um, densely populated in the area we were in hill country as the whitetail, it seemed. I mean, they were just everywhere. That's a beautiful animal, too, man. I just did a um, I just at the beginning of August went and did a training to become become a hunt master for Texas Wildlife Association to run. Uh, hunts for their adult recruitment program, adult hunt recruitment program. And we were at a place called Mason Mountain Wildlife Management Area. And they have Jim Spock and Black Bucks. And I mean, all these, uh, you know, all these uh, exotic species that if you're out there and you pull a tag, you're, you know, you're fully able to 
to hunt those animals. Well, uh, that's all. I mean, yeah. But I, I think there's like, you know, I think there's like eight or 10 tags, maybe 15 tags per year for the, for the hunt at that spot. And, you know, probably 3,000 people a year are, are applying. applying. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't, it's not great. <laughs> it, it doesn't sound as liberal as it once was, right? I mean, 10 years ago, a lot has changed in 10 years, but I, you know, I remember back then, I think non-resident, I was paying 230 something bucks or 250 something bucks. And I think I had, I want to say it was like six deer tag, nine turkey pig. It didn't matter. You just shoot them when you saw them. Um, So it doesn't sound as, as is, as liberal as it was, as far as, you know, uh, trigger happy. <laughs> I don't know the lack of a better word <laughs> because it used yeah, to be a blast. It's, uh, you know, the, the hogs are a problem. They're unlimited, but you know, I think you get five deer and um, you know, you can pay two bucks for your extra redfish tag if you want to do that. And then, you know, the turkeys are, are out there. Uh, you gotta be pretty creative on finding public land to do turkeys though. It's not part of the draw system. Yeah, Texas just I, it has amazing opportunity. I don't care if it's public or private. So even some of the exotic hunts, um, you know, for a guy that that can't afford um, or isn't you know willing or wanting to go to you know Africa or wherever you know those exotics are from, you can go to Texas for a couple thousand bucks. You and sure can <laughs> get in some yeah get in some tough country. Um, and a lot of that, you know, I think another misconception is everything in Texas is high fenced, which is, you know, which is far from the truth. So there's some great opportunity there still. Right. So cool, man. Yeah. You can get out there in West Texas in the mountains, uh, near the New Mexico border and find an elk or two. Yeah. That's that country. Still considered exotics in Texas. They're not, they're not, uh, you know, they're not a game animal officially. That's some rough country out there, though. West Texas yes, is. is very, it is very, very unforgiving. You got to be, you got to have your training in check. And if you want to, yeah. you want to add up there. Yeah. I mean, that that is some unforgiving country. You know, most times you think of Texas, you hear Hill Country, that Burnett area. Um, sure. And that's the extent of it. Everybody assumes that it's, you know, this flat plain state. And it really isn't. It has some challenging terrain. Yeah. So cool, man. So, um, foundation strength. So that was, you know, one of the reasons I reached out and starting, starting a training regimen, right. And, and for me at this point, I'm looking at elk season 2020 already. We just got done with, with our elk hunt. So one of the things that, you know, I faced last year and and you face a lot of times is, not starting at the right point. So I want to focus on the importance of starting at the right point and why we built that and why, you know, that foundation, in my opinion, is is more important than the rest of that training. Without that, you know, that solid base, then we're in trouble. So give us some background on foundation strength and then just start from, you know, that, that first protocol and then just kind of work us through um, how you see all that. So... Uh, the, I, I, so I've always been sort of a, uh, an enthusiast in terms of like strength training and working out, um, you know, um, in high school. And then, uh, as I became an adult, um, 
I, you know, I was like going online and I was looking at these, uh, you know, these protocols that people had, and I was trying to bench press 400 pounds and, you know, I'm, I'm a six, four and 200 pounds. So I'm a pretty lean, lanky guy. Um, and so that was never very good for my, <laughs> for my joints. And I, I had this perpetual cycle for a long time where I would go six months and make some great like strength gains. Uh, and then I would wear something out, you know, I'd wear a rotator cuff out or wear, you know, something in my knee out and I start having pain and then I would have to stop working out altogether. Sometimes do physical therapy, other times not and just let it heal. And then I would get back into it as soon as it started to feel better and just repeat that same cycle over and over again. Um, and I, through that, uh, and overcoming some like chronic, uh, sort of soft tissue stuff that I, that I worked, that I had to work through over time, you know, I just sort of came to the idea that, uh, I enjoyed doing the weightlifting. I enjoy, um, helping others in that aspect and so I thought, why not make this sort of a, a side hustle, you know, just do this on the side in the evenings and the mornings on the weekend. Um, and, you know, and just sort of see if uh, I can start helping some of my friends, uh, you know, get, get plugged into a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, it grew into doing some group workouts. I threw up a website and I, you know, I, my goal was to put together of company. And the reason it was called foundation strength and mobility is because I wanted anyone who was in any type of shape, no matter if you've never worked out before, uh, all the way up to somebody who's like a gym warrior working out six or seven days a week to be able to come and participate in these group workouts that I was doing and get something out of it. Um, and so, you know, basically the way that I worked it is I, every, exercise that we were doing that I, that I put together for, for any, you know, given, uh, training session would be scalable so that if you had an injury or you just didn't have the capability yet, or you didn't have flexibility or mobility around the exercises that I was putting together that I could, that I could work you into that. Um, with the idea being, let's all get strong and healthy and stay that way for as long as we possibly can. Um, so that's sort of where the idea came from. You know, it popped up. I had a, a weird, um, you know, I got the, the job I was working at for my primary sort of income, um, went away. The people shut the business down. And so I had this sort of gap in time where I was working on finding something else for primary income, where I had a lot of time to focus on this and just put sort of put it together and started running the workouts and, uh, you know, it just came together day by day. Right. So, so you said something there, that perpetual cycle. And as soon as you said that, I, I, I thought to myself, lift, injury, repeat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because that's a lot of times that's, I mean, really that's what happens. And I've seen that, you know, from, from, you know, my early twenties to, to now, you know, now I'm smarter with it. So I don't, I don't start without that foundation, right? But I still have that tendency to get under a bar and say, man, I used to be able to bench press 456 pounds, you know, and pump out seven reps, right? I, sure. Not crazy enough to go there now because I'd choke myself out with the bar. <laughs> but 
I still have to talk myself down from it, right? So that that perpetual cycle, man, I, I don't know that there's a guy... And I'm sure that there's women too, but for us, maybe it's a macho thing, right? We either we're gonna prove something to ourselves, or we're gonna test ourselves, or we think we're beyond, you know, that that stability uh, phase or building strength phase. Um, so why don't you start us from the bottom of that, so we can first look at how to try and prevent that lift injury repeat cycle. So the first thing is is just assessing where your starting point is. And in most cases that, uh, that requires somebody else taking a look at you who's qualified to do it. Uh, you know, there's, there's a thousand certifications out there that you can do. Uh, but going to your buddy, this is what I can tell you is not a great idea. It's going to your buddy who already does the 400 pound bench press, um, who has no background or certification in helping you from the starting point is in most cases, not a great idea. Um, because, because, you know, th- there's that, there's that camaraderie that comes with having a, a gym partner and you want to push yourself as hard as they are. And you might not have the capability when you start to do that. And then you end up with an injury and then it just becomes this, uh, this cycle. So Assessing what your starting point is and being comfortable in that place and not, you know, and not overdoing, um, not overdoing the workouts either in, you know, sort of quantity over a week period of time or, or that, um, you know, the time frame that you sit in the gym or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, so, you know, finding that baseline, in terms of what your mobility is, how, you know, how your, how your muscles and your joints respond to whatever that, uh, training method is, is, uh, is key for, for figuring it out. And then being comfortable with just letting go of whatever your, uh, egotistical, uh, you know, sort of pride, in your mind is telling you that you should do and just doing the things that you're capable of to start building um, so that you can get stronger without the injuries. So I'm going to challenge you a little bit here. I think I'm challenging you. So there's a ton of folks, right? Haven't, you know, there's maybe there's a guy that hasn't worked out in five or six years. There's a guy that's 40, pay, you know, 40 pounds overweight. There's a, a woman that's, you know, 15 pounds overweight. <clears throat> Excuse me. And a lot of folks worry about that perception or having eyes on them or getting into the gym um, to even start that, right, to even get that assessment. That's hard for a lot of people to do if they're at a certain point in their fitness. Um, what's your opinion on that and, and how should they... How should they be looking at that situation? Well, I would say the number one thing is uh, finding a professional who can uh, who can help you get started. Uh, there is there is no if you want to make the investment in your strength and your health, there is no better way to start than finding someone who's a professional who's been trained to do that in order to get your starting point sort of laid out and, and, and rolling from there. Um, because 
if you don't, if you don't find someone who can structure the way that you do it in a way that's going to be beneficial for you, people, you know, it's, it's hard walking, you know, I've been in that place personally before where I get to the gym. Uh, this is when I went to a, like a, you know, one of the big box gyms, I would get to the gym and I would sit in the car and I would think about how I don't even want to go inside, you know, and I know many people who've been in that place where they got to talk themselves into going to even just going inside for 10, 15 minutes. Uh, and that's not even getting started on the workout. And then you come there and you don't know what to do. It's like, there's a hundred machines in there and there's all these free weights and I'll, you know, I'll just start throwing some stuff together here and I'll throw some stuff together there. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden you end up trying to, uh, you know, putting 400 pounds on the barbell and trying to pick it up off the floor, uh, because you saw somebody else do that and, you know, and then you're laying on the floor with a hurt back. <laughs> so that, that actually brings up two things, right? So that, in my opinion, is, is the, and I don't know how many there are, but that's the second perpetual cycle, right? Is that, is that start stop cycle, right? Where you're, where you're challenged with stuff like that and it's defeating, you know, you go in to do something, <clears throat> you have this, you know, thought of what you should be able to do or what you used to be able to do and you're not capable for X, Y, and Z anymore. So that, you know, that's like number two perpetual there. Um, and it's a lot more weight or excuse me, a lot more work to get rid of weight or to get fit than it is on the other side of it. Um, so that doesn't lend itself to, uh, to that very well. Um, sure. uh, and then I forget what the second point was. I should have wrote it down. <laughs> it just has me. Th I mean, you could start all day, right? And go through this. Oh, that's what it was. But okay. So how does a person that's getting into it with either it's very cookie cutter or it's well outside of what you should be starting on, but because the sex appeal or the sell points or whatever, right? The guy or the girl, six pack ripped abs, amazing quads, glutes are just bounding out. You know, you got guns, you got shoulders. That's the stuff that sells, but it may not be necessarily the stuff that sells to somebody that's starting from zero overweight or not, but I'm starting at zero. Maybe it's a hard gainer, right? So how do you, how does a person go about figuring that out? There's a lot of stuff you look online. And I mean, that's probably got to be the number one what's a nice way to put it <laughs> sham um out there when when people don't have that foundation when someone can't say this is where we're starting this is why we're starting period point blank because it's not about the six-pack it's about overall fitness and well-being at the end sure. of the day i think um the, I think the, the most important thing in that situation is, is, well, I don't know. There's a lot of important things. A, a number one priority for me, whenever I, uh, whenever I work with somebody new or someone who's coming back, because uh, I got a couple of people that I work with. Um, you know, my best friend is a guy that, who, who I bring to the gym all the time. He's on my Instagram all the time. Uh, you know, and he has his goals and we work through those goals and it takes a long time to accomplish some of that stuff. If you're, if you're doing it in a way that's not artificial, if that makes sense. Um, so learning how to make, uh, light weights seem heavy is incredibly important. Um, 
And, you know, if that, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but like, take, you know, you can do so much work with just body weight um, from a starting point. And if you, if you set the intention and uh, create the tension in, in your body and the muscles that you're working, doing push-ups or doing body weight squats or doing pull-ups, you know, you can do, you can, you can make so much uh, progress in, in the way that you, uh, in your strength and the way that you feel um, that, you know, people are surprised by it because they think, oh, I got to throw, you know, I got to throw all this weight on a barbell or I got to throw up these hundred pound dumbbells. And, you know, if, if you can, if you can learn the way to make those light weights heavy, uh, you're ahead of the game, you know, and that's, you know, that coupled with developing that, you know, that sort of fortitude of I'm going, you know, I'm getting in the car, I'm going to the gym. That's the number one thing because it's a long way to the car from the driveway to get in the car, to go to the gym. And then you got to get to the gym and then you got to get out of the car and get in the gym. And then you got to have a plan of what you're going to do. Yeah. I never even, I would have never even thought along those lines until you said that. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's like, um, when I'm doing the group workouts, I, I have, I, I'm, I am coordinating with people a week ahead of time. I'm checking on them midweek. I am finding out what their situation is the night before. And then I'm contacting them all the morning of the workout because I know that between Friday night and Saturday morning at 9 a.m. getting to that park, a lot of stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, be it legit or not, right? I mean, that, right. and you hear it all the time, right? Getting started is the hardest part. Sure. And I never, it makes perfect, that's all. I would have never thought about that that walk, right? What it takes to just make the walk from the front door to the car and then you pull up to the gym, yeah. <laughs> never would have um, thought know, about it. You know, for some people, and myself included it sometimes, you know, even, even uh, to this day currently, you know, I didn't, uh, I was doing the hike to hunt thing with BHA for, for 60 days. And I was basically hiking, you know, as a full-time job from June until the beginning of August. Uh, and so like strength training went out the window because I didn't want to do anything that was going to like screw up my ankles or my knees or my hips or whatever. I didn't want to be sore because I was hiking so much. And then I just rolled right into getting prepped for my elk hunt. And I, you know, um, walking, you know, I have a pretty nice garage gym because of the, you know, because of the side business I've been doing. And even just walking from the living room to the garage gym, it was like a victory just to get out there. (laughs) Yeah, you build so, you build that, and you go. Oh, I'll use this more than going to the gym, and yeah, I don't think yeah, that's ever the case. Yeah. And you 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 know, so de- developing the consistency of just showing up and doing something to to you know to to move that meter is is a victory, right? Absolutely, for everyone. You know, once you get the consistency down, then. You know, and you've worked with somebody to figure out what your baseline is, what you're capable of at the very beginning, and then starting to develop strength uh, in the different movement archetypes. 
Uh, and then, you know, after that, it's just sort of based on what your goals are. You know, do you want to lose weight? Do you want to build mass? Do you want to be a better bow hunter? Do you want to do run marathons? Do you want to be a sprinter? You know? And there are people out there who specialize in everything, um, everything under the sun that you can get connected with who will help you carry out those goals. So I got a couple things for you. So right there, and I'll, I'll take the, the low hanging fruit, right? And I think that's part of the problem is, is you mentioned what you want to do. Well, everybody wants all the above, right? Right off the bat, you know, I'm 80 pounds overweight, but I want to have six packs, be able to run 10 miles, lift 500 pounds and to no avail, right? I mean, it's just, it, it's not going to happen that way, unfortunately. Um, and then to back us up a little further, and I think it's important that we talk about it, as you said, you know, you'd be surprised at how much the body weight movements will do. And to me, it's important to hit on that again, because now we're talking injury and injury prevention. Um, again, you're not going to go from 80 pounds overweight, sedentary lifestyle to a fitness competitor. So getting in there, doing the body weight movement, um, and getting your body used to those movements and those postures um, and your muscles firing off the way they were supposed to. Again, you know, the couch doesn't fire muscle much, you know, hitting the remote with your thumb and your phone with your, you know, <laughs> with your index. It just doesn't qualify. Right. So I think it's important to talk about that injury prevention um, in that startup, too. So. Give us a little bit. So, uh, you know, just going through everything. And I noticed that one of your, you're pretty, I want to say regimental, but it's set up, right? You have your stability phase, a strength phase. So walk us through, you know, each one of your phases in, in the, in the training and what each one of those phases means. So I, I'm a big fan of a few things. Number one, I like to do um, dynamic movements at the beginning of a training session in order to just get, you know, break a little sweat, uh, get the muscles worked up, uh, you know, get the joints warmed up. One of my favorite things is doing, is just doing dead hangs, you know, hanging from a pull-up bar and just letting all the tissue in your shoulders pull apart because, you know, between the shoulders and the knees, that's, that's like the place that, that everybody, you know, especially the shoulders, people, you know, sitting at a desk all day, um, you know, hunched over or like hunched over staring at their phone all day long. Uh, you know, they develop this like tension and tightness all along that, um, all along that rib cage and the, you know, the spinal column and the shoulders and the traps. And so getting all that sort of unglued, and, um, you know, and loosened up and, and, and moving is, is incredibly important, especially if you're, if you're in the place where you're doing some of the heavy, moving the heavy weights around, whether it's a barbell bench press or a deadlift or, you know, whatever the case may be, getting those, getting that stuff warmed up and moving is, is, is key because, you know, you just pull 250 pounds, even if you're capable of doing 400, you just do it cold you know, you end up with like a pulled hamstring or something if you're doing it. So every, the, at the beginning of every training session, I'm doing, I'm putting, putting, whether it's a group workout or an individual session, I'm putting people 
through some movements that are just getting things warmed up, getting the muscles loose, breaking a little sweat. Uh, and, and, you know, and then we work into, you know, some strength training stuff and it's gotta be efficient because most people don't want to sit in the gym for two hours or two and a half hours or three hours. There are those people who, who just love being there all day and, and, uh, and kill themselves. But I'm a big proponent of the fact that you don't have to, um, feel like you're going at the end of the workout in order to make progress. Um, and so, you know, we'll do two or three. I like supersets because it keeps the heart rate up. You know, we do dependent on what sort of movements we're doing, whether it's like a push pull day where we're, you know, doing a bench press and a deadlift or we're doing rows or, you know, some other uh, work with a kettlebell or, you know, I like the unconventional tools too, the steel mace and the steel clubs and stuff. Man, sandbags and kettlebells, that's my go-tos. I oh, absolutely sandbags love them. are so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. And you, can do so much, you can do so much stuff with those with those things that you almost don't even need dumbbells or a barbell. No, uh, and you get a great workout. Yeah, especially functional movement stuff. I mean, you can't... The, your, your offset movement, your functional movement, uh, yeah, you can't... Nobody can argue anything is better than a sandbag and some kettlebells in my head most days. Sure. Get the battle ropes out a little bit. Um, so we'll do uh, generally three to four supersets of different movements based on what the workout, you know, what movement types we're working around. Um, and then it's, you know, it's just uh, a little cool down and some stretching at the end. Uh, and so mix through all of that, you know, I'm a big proponent of like core strength uh, and grip strength. So mix through all of that just by, you know, on purpose, but not necessarily, you know, it feels like it's by accident to the person who's doing it, but almost every movement that I, that I will put somebody through is going to have some component where you're, you know, focused on keeping or tight, or we're doing grip work, you know, those dead hangs I talked about where you're, where you're loosening up the shoulders, you're hanging with your body weight. So if you can do that for 30 seconds, or you can do it for 45 seconds or 60 seconds at a time, you're building grip strength, which in turn developing your ability to uh, translate movements all over the place. So the more grip strength you have, the more weight that you can move around with a kettlebell or a barbell or a dumbbell or a sandbag. Um, and so I'm, you know, I love doing movements, whether it's like bridge stuff where you've got your, your lay on your back, but your hips are up off the ground to keep your core engaged. Uh, I love doing uh, exercises with people that hit multiple, you know, it's like compound exercises. Mm -hmm. And I've had a couple of PTs on on the show, and that's where both of them started was everything, you know, the core is the basis of everything, right? And, and defining the core is not a six pack of abs. It's, you know, it is that muscle group, you know, in our abdomen and, and that it, balance starts there. I mean, just about everything in, I'm well, the layman, right? 90% of our movements starts in the core. I mean, without that, you know, you, you have, there's your foundation. You have no basis. It's how we stand up straight. 
So after you go, after you do your dynamic, um, where are we at? I mean, if it's, you know, like I said, it was what I saw was stability. And I think your next one was, was strength. So how long, I mean, I guess that's individually based, right? How long do you work on that stability phase before you start progressing? Well, it just depends. I mean, we're, uh, I, I like incorporating stuff. So single leg work is very important to me. Uh, because it, it serves several purposes and, you know, you build strength, but you're also developing, uh, balance and you're developing core strength and stability. Um, and so, you know, doing, doing, uh, single arm, single leg exercises, whether it's a kettlebell press, you know, from your back or, you know, single leg deadlifts with a kettlebell or with body weight. Uh, or even working up, you know, a, a lot of people, uh, can't start with doing a pistol squat, you know, where you're squatting down on one leg all the way to your, you know, where your butt's touching the ground and standing back up. But, you know, that's a goal that people can have to, to work toward, um, you know, you start doing those weighted and then you're doing some real, you know, you're doing some real work. All right. So, so walk me through a pistol squat. I know exactly what it is. But walk me through the purpose of a pistol squat, because that's not something it's not a position or a posture that we're going to ever really find ourselves in. I'm sure yeah, there's I'm benefit not, to it, but I'm not sure necessarily what the purpose of it is, <laughs> but it is uh, it's a it's an incredible display of balance, stability and strength in uh, in your whole, you know, it's a in whole, whole body. body, right? whole body exercise to, to maintain your, your stability and balance on that one foot and be able to squat all the way down with your, you know, with the counterbalance of your other legs sticking out, uh, and then stand back up is, is the harder part. Um, you know, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty tough progression to get to. So I'm still not completely there. You know, I work on it here, but I'm still not completely there. And I got a guy, you know, one of the guys that I look to for inspiration, um, who's been sort of a mentor. I watched him do a pistol squat on a foam roller. He was standing on a foam roller and did a pistol squat. And I, I was like, <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever get there. <laughs> I thought, see, and I, I saw somebody do it on a BOSU ball and I was impressed. And then yeah. I, I forget the lady's name and she did it on, and I kid you not, and you could YouTube it. She did it on top of a kettlebell. And I was just like, okay, like I get it. And, and like you said, it's a, it's a bit of a display. Yeah, that's a lot of work that it takes to get there. But it was like, okay, I, I really don't get the purpose of it. <laughs> I, don't, I just yeah, don't get it. <laughs> it's, it. It is a it is a feat. It's an impressive feat. I don't know what what purpose it translates to in the real world, but it's you know it's a good thing to have. Yeah, it's like I did all this. I yeah, I, I did all this to. It's like shooting you know shooting your bow at 120 yards. Um, probably no purpose in you know in hunting application well there's some guys that would argue that but uh yeah it's pretty it's pretty daggone sweet to be able to get out there and you know drop a three inch group at 100 plus so sure so move us past that that stability phase uh so once we get past that opening portion of the of the training session we're 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 just moving into uh, to building strength and 
you know, that looks different for everybody because everybody's goals are different. So some people uh, want to be able to pull an 80 pound bow and some people want to lose a hundred pounds and some people want to, uh, you know, be able to run a hundred miles or do a triathlon. Um, and so it, what you do long-term is dependent in, in terms of like, uh, sort of mapping out your progression is, is dependent on where you can go from there. So, um, if I want, you know, if my main priority is going to Utah and being able to hike in the mountains and, you know, and shoot an elk with my bow, then I'm doing a lot of pulling exercises to develop that strength. In addition to shooting my bow a lot, uh, you know, that can't be understated. And I'm doing, you know, I'm putting a lot of miles on my feet. So I'm doing a lot of endurance. Um, other people just want want to develop power. I mean, ultimately the, the, the trajectory or, you know, for lack of a better term that I, that I'm going toward is, um, power and longevity. So I want to be as strong as I can possibly be, you know, just in, in general terms for as long as I can possibly be that way. Uh, so when I'm 85, I want to still be able to walk around and be healthy and have strong bones and joints and muscles. And the only way to do that is to work them for that long. Got to move. Yeah. Got to move. And I suffer from that. Right. So, you know, I drive around, I might log 150, 200 miles a day, driving from job to job, to job, sitting in traffic. Um, and that's one of the issues I have, man. I'll, you know, I get work out and then like, matter of fact, I mean, just, you know, case in point coming back from, from Colorado where I'm on my feet, you know, 13, 14 hours a day, just move, 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 feeling great, get home, go back to work. And then after four days back at work, I'm just, you know, here goes the aches and pains again. You just don't have, I don't have that movement, that range of motion. It's not, you know, it's not letting those muscles fire off the way they're supposed to. Yeah. You gotta, it's. It's something that's got to be worked, even in in tiny increments, it's got to be worked on constantly in order to maintain it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah. And that's, you know, that's the... uh, (laughs) That's the challenge, though. I mean, we live... That's the challenge. That's the challenge is is, is maintaining... Yeah, maintaining a consistency no matter what uh, outside life... Uh, situations are are arising on a daily basis. So I'm going to call that the third perpetual cycle. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because you're motivated to do it. Life happens. Yeah. I mean, exactly. That's the, the life happens cycle right there because as, as motivated as one can be to get after it. Um, and, and there's people that'll, you know, call BS on it. You have to make the time. Right. Um, but life happens. I mean, people, we live, I think, in this day and age, our lives are busier now than any point in history. And and maybe that's a choice we've made or or maybe it's just a circumstance and it could be a circumstance of where we live. I live in, you know, the arguably the busiest city in the world just about. Um, 
You know what I mean? So it it is literally like to make that time, you are you are forcing yourself to look past the four or five hours of traffic a day that that you sat in going to work and getting home and mustering up whatever bit you have left. But that requires a sacrifice of time. And that sacrifice of time could be away from family. It could be away from, you know, shooting your bow or your camera or whatever it is. Right. So it it, it is it's rough, man. I mean, we have to we have to make sometimes fight to make that time. But it's so important to keep that, you know, to keep it moving. Yeah, yeah. I, unfortunately, um, if you want to maintain that consistency, something's got to get sacrificed. You know, in in most cases, uh, for the typical person, something's got to get sacrificed because if if you're looking at that like typical nine to five job where you're going and you're sitting at a desk all day and you got your 30 minutes of lunch and then you go back to work and then you get home and maybe you have a commute to, to, to home. And if you've got a family, then it's just sort of compounded because you got to hang out with the kids and you got to, they got to get the homework done and there's got to be some semblance of a family life. And then getting up at four in the morning to get your workout done at four thirty-five then you got you have to find it somewhere but you know ultimately uh i believe that something is better than nothing so any movement that you can do even if it's just doing some mobility work where you're you know doing some stretching uh every so often while you're at work or it's you know hitting some body weight squats in between you know while you're on a conference call or whatever the case may be any place that you can find that you're putting work in for, for that, uh, you know, it's, that strength ability is, is, it's, yeah, it's, it's good for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what that translates to, right. Is how much, how much of that sedentary time should we say, I need this much movement time, right? Because that, I, that, that, is so unbalanced, right? I mean, you know, you look at America and we're as overweight as we've ever been. And, and, and I believe that this, the, our lifestyles, just everything is easy. It comes to us. You can don't even have to go buy freaking groceries anymore. You know, go to the store rather and buy groceries. They can come to you. So it's like how much of that sedentary time equates to this is what you should be moving, right? What is it? I think 3,500 calories or something like that is a pound of fat or something. You know, how much of that, oh, that's- you know, how do you translate that? I'm gonna have to look at that. That that's I'm interested in that one for you know get these thoughts and I got to write this stuff down because that has to be. I mean, you know, you sit down like like again for me, you know, call it four hours of traffic minimum a day. You know, do I have to go move for two hours? How do you? Is there any reversing that? <laughs> I mean, the psychological effect is great, right? When, when we, you know, when we're, when we're sitting, we're behind, you know, a desk or whatever it is behind the wheel, um, get to the gym or go on a run or, you know, swing the kettlebells or offset work with the sandbags and the BOSU ball, you know, the mental relief is huge. Um, the physical is, you know, is a lot harder to see it, but, you know, I'm gonna have to look and see if there's if there's some recommended numbers out there for that. 
Yeah, any any amount of endorphins that you can that you can um, that you can get dumped into your brain uh, from doing some physical activity is good for you for sure. So cool, man. Enough of my tangent. So we so we got uh, talking strength. So where do we go from that from that strength phase there? So. <clears throat> From the strength, you know, from the strength phase, it's really just uh, every workout that I do and um, every group workout, individual workout that I do, we're, we're closing out with, with some, like, static stretching. So, you know, one of my favorites is the couch stretch. If you're familiar with that one, um, that's a good one for getting those hips and, and like, quads unwound uh if you've been sitting at a desk or in a car all day you google couch stretch a few things will come up and you spend two minutes doing that uh you will in the moment you're going to hate it because it doesn't feel very good but at the end if you consistently do that stuff uh man it, it makes a world of difference in your ability to just get up and get down and and move around um so you know finding ways to just stretch those uh stretch those muscle fibers out, uh, get that soft tissue loosened up after you tighten it up, you know, and get that blood flow going with the strength work. Um, you know, it just gives you more room to grow. So what you don't do is just walk in and do a bunch of, uh, bench press or, you know, deadlift or squats or whatever, and then not any sort of mobility movement. And then you just get tighter and tighter and tighter and then your your hips and your knees start to not work correctly, and then all of a sudden you got pain, and then you roll back into that thing we talked about at the beginning, where uh, you run into this perpetual pain cycle uh, that you can't get out of without just stopping moving the weight. And that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of dudes do it. I've seen it. I I've been there. A lot of guys do that. Go, you know, eat, eat, eat. Let's lift, lift, lift. Go super heavy on everything and walk away. You know, no cool down, well, no warm up, no cool down, no stretching. And then the uh, shoulder injuries. I mean, shoulder injuries with guys that are lifting is huge. I think I've seen and heard of more shoulders, you know, going rotator cuffs. And it's, uh, yeah, that you're talking months of we, months of we just, PT. Yeah, we just get in there. We just get in there and wear ourselves out. And then, uh, you know, don't do the work it takes because it's not any fun. You know, there's no aesthetic appeal to doing some some like auxiliary exercises to strengthen your rotator cuffs uh that's the boring stuff that nobody wants to add to the workout right the the five pound five pound weights and <laughs> it's it's right. hard to nobody's right. nobody's getting impressed by your rotator cuff workouts <laughs> i didn't look awesome in the mirror at the gym <laughs> so so how do we translate how do we translate these progressions to hunting? Well, uh, consistency and repetition. That's the thing. That's the thing for me. Consistency and repetition. Um, you know, doing bent over rows and using the steel clubs and the sandbags and the, you know, working, um, you know, burning out my, shoulders and my triceps with a, with a battle rope 
is all great, but if I don't get out at the range or in the backyard with my bow and pull it back over and over again and get that consistency, you know, it's like uh, I can get as strong as I want to. And case in point, I, you know, went to Utah at the big, at the end of August for this nine day elk hunt. Um, I killed an elk. We packed it out. I didn't pull, I didn't pick my bow up for a month. Um, you know, and deer season just started whitetail season, archery season just started here in Texas. And I'm going this weekend, uh, out to a buddy's property and see if we can, you know, put a whitetail on the ground. And, uh, so this past week for the first time in a month, I picked my bow up and it was like the first time I ever pulled a bow back. It was, uh, it wasn't painful, but it was tough. You know, and just getting, you know, the third, the second one was a little better and the third one was a little better. And by the, you know, by the like the third or fourth round, I was drilling them again. And, you know, I was back into that greased up sort of routine, but man, consistency and repetition is just, uh, it's just key. And it's, it goes, it, you know, the same goes for the, for the hiking, you know, for the being able to get up and down the mountains. And, um, I mean, being a flatlander, uh, I have trouble, you know, the elevation is something that I just can't, you know, I can't replicate that in my training. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that those masks that people sell online work uh, for, for replicating elevation. Um, so I don't waste my money on that stuff. I just, you know, it's like I did the hike hunt thing. I hiked 857 miles in two months. Woo. I, you know, I ended up, I, it's funny. I started that process at the beginning, just having a good time with some other Texas BHA guys and just sort of razzing each other about, Hey, I did eight miles today. I did 12 total miles today. And, you know, one day I just happened, I was in, I was looking at the app. I had logged some miles and I saw these two guys uh, talking about how they thought they were going to win. And like a switch flipped in my mind. And I thought, Nope, I'm, I'm going to win this competition. And from that point forward, uh, you know, I was putting miles in like it was full-time work. <laughs> I, ended up, I ended up at 857 miles and won the thing. Um, and what that translated to was I got to Utah and instead of at, you know, a hundred feet of elevation where I live at in Houston, I'm at eight, I'm camping at 8,000 feet of elevation and we're hiking up to like you know, we're hunting up to like 10,000 feet of elevation, which in the scheme of things for elk hunting, it's sort of in a, probably a medium range. Um, you know, and I, my lungs were burning. My, my head is pounding for the first couple of days. I had the, a, a, a mild case of altitude sickness for my, you know, I take 10 steps and it feels like someone's banging me in the temple with a hammer. But, but I can tell you this, after 857 miles uh, of hiking for the two months before that, my feet never got tired, my feet never got sore, and my legs were always strong. And so as soon as my lungs and my brain caught up at, on about day four, it was like, it was on. Heck yeah, so, what is that? 857 at 60 days, you said two months, right? That's like... 14, 14 and a quarter miles a day. <laughs> yeah, I was doing, yeah, I was doing eight or 10 miles a day for the first three or four weeks. And then it went into the twenties a day, 
one day, you know, with some, with some other Texas BHA guys, we did a 30 mile hike all at one time. Uh, and that was pretty brutal. <laughs> just, but, just, to but we say, got it done. Yeah. Just to, just to get it done. That's awesome. But that, I mean, that, there goes that, that to me, that translates to the mountain too, right? Because it's not as fun walking around or doing a ruck through the city or, you know, even, even some light trails, it's hard to pull five miles off in that scenario and you get into sure. the mountains and you're ready to go, go, go. Um, so the mental capacity that you gain in doing that type of training, um, it, it translates in my opinion, far greater than the physical aspect as well. A hundred percent. You know, if you can tell, you know, if you, if you recognize the fact that you just walked 30 miles of, of downtown Houston, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a big deal, man. It takes more mental. That's nuts. Sure. Yeah. I, I, when I was out there in the mountains, I knew that I could do it. You know, if I just push through the, the burning lungs and the, and the pounding headache, uh, I'm going to, I can get this done because, you know, I put all these miles in ahead of time and I shot that bow like it was going out of style. So when, when the opportunity arose where I was standing 37 yards from that elk, uh, I had visualized that shot a thousand times and I had taken it hundreds of times. And so my blood pressure didn't even get up. It was just like, I, I let that arrow go and it was slow motion. I saw that arrow go. Heck that yeah. So we're going to rewind. Let's see. We're going to rewind about 56 minutes, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we got to talk about this Utah elk hunt. Yeah. So yeah. Why don't you give us, I mean, so you prepared, you prepared, you prepared and it's all you Go ahead, Man. It's, it's interesting. I, so I started hunting nine years ago, right? I was doing rifle hunting, whitetail, deer, hogs, sitting in a blind. And uh, about four years ago, I, I mean, I, you know, I started to get bored with that because it's almost like grocery shopping at some point. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm not going to hate on it because there's a, there's a high likelihood that I will go sit in a blind again. Um, if, if the opportunity arises, but it won't be my preference ever again. After this <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, about four years ago, I was on a hunting trip out of, out of a buddy's property and a couple of my buddies that I had not spent a lot of time around brought their compound bows. And I held that dude's compound bow for the first time and it set off an obsession in my mind that I wanted to become a bow hunter. So you know, 18 months ago, I bought my first bow and I've basically been shooting almost every day since then. Um, uh, and about the time I got the bow, the obsession about going on a mountain elk hunt, uh, also, you know, on public land, do it yourself, the whole thing, um, sort of became, became this, this goal for me. Uh, and you know, I got engaged last year and I had to spend some money on the engagement ring. So the elk hunt sort of fell by the wayside for last year. And then this year, my buddy who's been bow, you know, bow hunting elk for, uh, eight years or so, the same one who let me hold his bow for the first time opened up an opportunity for me to come with him and his dad, uh, on their like annual elk hunting trip. And so we started training, we started doing the hiking, um, you know, I think you and I talked, you know, correspond a little bit on, on Instagram about, you know, we're going 
going out to Utah to the Mantle Assault National Forest. And, uh, you know, we got out there and it was, it was everything that I hoped it was going to be. You know what I mean? The, it was, it was, I, I was going to consider it a success just to go out into the mountains. And if we'd never saw an elk, just getting out there and hunting and learning how to call and doing, you know, doing all the stuff that you got to do to be prepared, that was going to be a success. If I could, if I could carry that out, if we got into some elk, that was going to be like the cherry on top. And, you know, somewhere way above all that, uh, without any expectation was actually putting an elk on the ground. Um, you know, and it just all came together. Uh, you know, we were hunting, let's see, I mean, we, we were pretty fortunate in that place because we were in elk almost every day, um, at one point or another. And, you know, things just, uh, between the altitude sickness and just, you know, the moo cows out there, because we were hunting in a place where there's some, you know, some private land sort of in the middle of all the public land and they run cows all through the valley and, you know. If you've been in that situation, then you understand that elk here for the moo cows at all. Uh, and in addition to that, when the moo cows see you, they have a tendency to just take off down the valley and make as much noise as possible and run every wild animal out of the entire area. Um, had that happen a few times, but you know, the long story short is I, you know, we had seen a group of elk on this pond. Uh, and so I decided I was going to sit in the pond in the morning and see if they came in again. You know, it's probably 12 or 15 elk. In the and I, I walk, I'm walking to the pond and as I got to it, it's pitch dark and I realized that they're there already. So as I walk in, I blew them all out into the tree line, 50 or 60 yards away. Um, so I just sit down and I, you know, it's funny. I've listened to your podcast a bunch of times and I've heard you talk about the wind checker over and over and over again. And I went through, I don't know, I probably went through three or four of those little bottles of wind checker. Um, I, you know, I'm sitting there as the sun starts to come up and I'm blowing that wind checker and it's just blowing at them. <laughs> and I, I just resigned myself to the fact that they were not going to stick around long, but we, you know, I had a little fun calling to them and the bull was screaming at me and some of the cows were yelling. They ended up going up the mountain. So I decided I was going to roll up over this ridge and try to cut them off on the other side. So in total, I think I hiked eight miles uh, from the point at which I got out of the truck and walked to the pond until I killed my elk. Uh, it was like 8.3 miles or something. So I go up this ridge and I catch them. I ended up getting lucky and catching them in the place where they might be. Um, they were there. <laughs> Uh, I was probably 50 yards from them and I got busted by some calves that were sort of up the slope from me and they run off and the bull runs down the mountain. Like it sounded like a Mack truck going through the forest. Uh, and these two big cows are standing there and they're on high alert and they're staring at me and they're looking around trying to figure out what's going on. And I did some cow calls at them that I learned from Michael Batiste. So shout out to him. Um, and uh, for, by some miracle, they just decided I was an elk again or that, you know, nothing was wrong and went back to chewing on leaves. 
And uh, I mean, it was unbelievable. So I ranged this elk at 37 yards and there's like a perfect 12 inch square window through the brush and leaves to her vitals. And I, you know, like I said before, I, I have taken that shot hundreds of times and I've visualized it even more than that. And so when I let that arrow go, I just watched it in slow motion go right through her. Um, and she bolted up that mountain and around and I heard the crash and, you know, I don't want to belabor the whole thing, but Oh, I no, spent- belabor, belabor. I love it. I'm smiling. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking elk, man. <laughs> okay, so I, I shoot this elk, and she bolts up, and the whole, I mean, the forest went alive with them running off. Um, and I heard what I thought was the crash, you know, four or five seconds later. Uh, and so I set a timer for 15 minutes. I sat down, I drank some water and ate an energy bar. And, you know, the timer goes off, and I go down to where I had shot her and I cannot find any blood anywhere. Cannot find the arrow. Uh, and so I, you know, I got a little panicked. And so then I, so I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do like a, a search of this whole area. I'm going back up where I know I took the shot from. I'm going to range a spot. I'm going to find the exact, you know, what I, I net this whole area and I'm alone at this point. Cause, um, my buddies haven't gotten there yet. So I go, I just follow the trail that she took up. I can't find a drop of blood anywhere. And I never found, I still never found the arrow even after we found the elk. But um, I circled this whole area and, you know, I got to be like 45 minutes or an hour and, you know, the panic is beginning to set in, you know, maybe I missed it. Maybe I just made all this up in my mind. Maybe I didn't, you know, maybe I didn't hit her. Maybe <laughs> I changed it. I don't know what happened. Uh, maybe I just made the whole thing up. Uh, so finally, my hunting buddies arrive. And so then now there's five of us just canvassing this whole area. Um, you know, and it got to be an hour and a half, hour 40 minutes, probably an hour and 45 minutes uh, after I took the shot. I am, you know, I, I'm following this trail that I watched her go up for probably the hundredth time. And I just happened to push through this brush uh, that I had not gone through previously. And it was like, uh, it was like a horror movie, um, to be completely honest. She ran up that mountain and probably 40 yards away from me and didn't drop a drop of blood until all of it came out. And then she was dead 10 feet from where, where she started to bleed. Um, and that was the, that moment of being the one who pushed through the brushes and found the elk that I shot was, I mean, that's an experience that I am not ever going to forget. Um, so, you know, lots of hugs, some tears were shed. (laughs) Uh, just, you know, tears of relief and joy and the whole thing. Um, and, I, you know, from the moment that we, you know, we got right to work, um, you know, ordered her up, packed her out and, uh, you know, said a little prayer for the elk and the sacrifice she made. And just, um, it was an unbelievable experience, the whole thing. Uh, so, and I spent, you know, I got home, you know, I got back to Houston and, um, you know, I think I shot my elk on day six of, of uh, a nine day trip and 
<clears throat> I got home and then this like anxiety set in about the fact that every other type of hunting that I do is ruined now. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, isn't there something about that? And I, I can't figure it out, man. Like I am, I'm upset, like beyond obsession with them. Like it's just amazing. I, I, I love to hunt period, right? Whatever hunting, I, I just want to be in the woods. But when it comes yep. to a comparison you know, if somebody said, you know, for the rest of your days, dude, you got two weeks in September or a month of deer season. I'm picking the two weeks in September chasing elk, man. It's just 100%. something about that animal is just phenomenal to be in the woods. Yeah, it's uh, it is something that I will make it a priority to do every, every year, year. Yep. Uh, that I can for the rest of my life. Absolutely, man. It is just to see him. Right. I mean, and we hear it and I've said it and there's tons of guys that say it. But there, the majesty, when you see that thing move through the woods and realize how big it is standing, you know, X amount of yards in front of you, be it 15 or, or 50. And it's just like, how, how are you moving through this dark timber or these thick woods the way you do? And why is it so hard to find you when you're, when you're not talking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a, it's an unbelievable sight to see, to watch them just sort of gallop up the mountain. Yeah. Uh, knowing that I just did that and it took me four hours. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm cussing you a little bit, man. I don't know if you heard about my, if you listened to that episode with my son. I did. I did. And, I did. uh, we, we, we got our butts kicked. I mean, in a nutshell, we got our butt kicked, right? I mean, they, it's not something that we prepared for. At least I didn't prepare for the silence. Um, you know, it was almost like, okay, rewind. We're going into a little like deer elk tactic here, but that thing just disappears. And it's just like, man, what do we do? You know, so we're at a loss, call it an experience. Um, Cause I'm sure, you know, guys have tactics for that, but that inexperience, it just left us, me, it left me puzzled, you know, and there was parts where I lost sight of something that I talk about all the time. And that's just why we're, why we're out there, why we love it so much. But there was periods of that hunt because I was so wanting to get my boy an elk. I actually lost sight of it momentarily, right? Maybe for, I'm going to, maybe two days. It was just like, you know, ah, I was going crazy, man. Um, and, and it was my son that reeled me back in, you know, when we talked about, you know, getting up to the plateau and he was just like, I can't believe I made it up here. And that's really what reeled me into it. And it's like, okay, I totally lost sight of something that's super important to me, focused on punching a tag. Um, but man, it's, it's something about that animal. I've never done that for a deer. <laughs> it is, you know, it is amazing, man. That just, I don't know. I don't know if it's how social they are, how we can interact with them or what. It's just, man, I'm obsessed. <laughs> I got a problem. Yeah. I, that, that moment, that moment where I was busted 100% and I just, you know, I just did some social cow calls uh, and they just went back to doing what they were doing, satisfied that it was another elk in the woods. I mean, the if nothing else had happened in that whole trip, that by itself was worth all of the time that I put in because it was awesome. 
And I could see that. I mean, I was willing for I was willing to settle for that. <laughs> we didn't even get that, man. <laughs> that was and I think that was the hardest part was they're just it, we were seeing the sign, but there was just there was no numbers. And this is an area that I had scouted and it was like, wow, it was cows in June, July sign everywhere. Old rubs. I mean, I keep saying I got to count them. I keep saying it was about 150 rubs that that I found. I got pictures of the majority of them. Some were seemed like 11 foot up aspens i mean there was one we got into one area and it was i saw the rub and i and i was just i was awestricken i had to go up and i'm looking up this tree and i'm going how in the hell did something stretch up that high to make that (laughs) i mean it was it was phenomenal man to see it was just unbelievable to see a rub go up that high but to see all that sign and to have sap still freshly dripping from a tree and and not to see but a handful of animals in 11 days was uh wow <laughs> man i can i listened to that podcast and i could feel it oh it was it was something uh, i saw the post you made and talking about the, the that that level of the sort of the defeat that comes up and then pushing through it and just keep you know keep continue to grow I could, I could feel, I could feel that. And I'm not going to BS, man. That feels at the end of it, especially I think because it was my boys tag that felt like a cop out to me. It felt like I was making an excuse, which I, I will not make excuses about, you know, all not failure, but it's failure, right? I didn't punch the tag and it really felt like a cop out. And I really had to search within me to find, you know, to, to look for the successes in that hunt. And it was really, really hard, man. I I don't, that that was one of the biggest challenges I've ever faced on the mountain, in the woods hunting period. And I've done some stupid stuff hunting. I'll go hunting 112 to 116 every summer chasing around one buck for two years with my bow in an area that, you know, I should be chasing them with a rifle. Um, this one just, it whooped my butt, man. But it was worth every single minute. <laughs> you know, every single minute. That was super hard to walk away, you know, we're after the 11 days. That was, yeah, that was torture. That was torture. Um, So you're involved with Texas BHA, man. Give us a little bit about that. Um, tell us what your involvement there is. And I know Texas is, uh, is building that pretty steadily. Yeah. You know, they, they, they say we're the fastest growing chapter of Texas BHA. Uh, I'd like us to be the the largest chapter of BHA. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what, how long it'll take for us to get there. Uh, that's my goal though. Um, I got, you know, probably on a, a podcast or something, or, you know, one of the TV shows I heard about BHA and I, you know, I threw the $25 at it, uh, three years ago. And then, you know, just by happenstance, I got connected with a guy who was sort of, who was getting to organize stuff locally, um, and got plugged into sort of being on the committee for organizing stuff in, in my local area. Uh, I love doing that. And then I, you know, from that, I ended up being, becoming one of the co-chairs of the Houston area. Um, so then I'm more, you know, plugged into 
you know, developing events and putting together stuff and, you know, getting people engaged, um, you know, back in, uh, back in the spring, uh, an opportunity opened up and I, um, applied for the position of director of public outreach for the Texas chapter. So now I've moved on to the directors for the Texas chapter, uh, intention of herding all the cats all over the state um out to like wrangle people up and get people engaged and uh get people plugged into the the organization and you know um you know schedule events and you know execute the events and do cleanups and uh you know we actually just did um loosely organized cleanup effort uh, where we had two or three groups of people in different places across the state, you know, go out to uh, public access places and, uh, you know, just do a, do an organized cleanup. And, you know, we like doing that. We got a range day coming up where everybody's going to go out and sight in their rifles and have a good time and try to get some new members. So I, I, I love participating in the, uh, the journey of having those brand new people who've never hunted before show up and have no idea what to do and sort of uh, be a part of the process of them learning how to get into the lifestyle that we enjoy so much. That's awesome, man. It's awesome. So what's the uh, 2020 outlook, man? You Where are you looking at elk next year? You know, uh, we may go back to the same place, um, or we may go to Colorado. Uh, one of my buddies, the guy who sort of invited me on the elk trip to begin with has some property outside of Durango. And so by next year, he'll be, uh, he'll have residency in Colorado and he may want to get the, the cheaper tag. <laughs> um, I, but you know, ultimately my plan is I'm applying in New Mexico every year. I am buying points in Arizona, in Utah, uh, in Montana, uh, you know, because I want to hunt elk in all the places that, you know, that are, that are sort of renowned for having awesome elk. So, um, we'll do the over the counter stuff and, you know, someday it pulled for the, you know, half percent opportunity to, hunt the you know to hunt the giants i didn't like hear the, i didn't hear why we were in, the unit that we were in is i mean we were hunting cows uh we had cow spike tags um the unit that we were in in utah is a limited entry unit where a non-resident i think there's one non-resident tag per year like a 0.44 percent chance but we were like when we saw bulls they were giant um so and we actually met a couple of guys who had pulled like the 18 year tag who were out there you know they're talking about they'd seen some 350s and they were passing on those 375 plus and it's like i don't even this was my first elk hunt i don't even know i don't even have an understanding of what it would be like to pass on a 350 bull much less what the difference between 350 and 70? <laughs> 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 Nothing in I my opinion, man. Wait for 18 years, you you get that down. Right. Yeah, especially if you know, you know, you you know that that area is holding that class of bull and in some. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. 
but that's a rough one, man. Cause you know, you know, the rule, right? I mean, don't, don't pass on the first day what you would shoot on the last. That's, that's a, right. That is a discipline that I, with elk, I don't know. It's going to take me some while, uh, a while to learn <laughs> that one, man. You know, the bull that I shot yeah. last year, I'm going to say he was, you know, 280 to 300. And, uh, you know, you asked me then, that's the biggest bull ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah, that's a rough one. More power to those guys. Yeah, so, some of the some of the ones that we saw that these guys would have passed on, I mean, if I had a tag, would have been no question. So what about Wyoming? I mean, Wyoming, I don't know, every, I'll say non-resident every two year, Wyoming is phenomenal. Um, and in my opinion, and I and I have no basis outside of what I saw. I think their management plan in Wyoming across all species, from what I saw, is second to none. Because I don't think I've ever driven through a, a state and saw that much game. And the caliber game that I saw was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. From the antelope to the mule deer, the elk. It was just phenomenal, man. Yeah, absolutely. I got a uh, I got a buddy uh, here locally through BHA who who went up to Wyoming this year and did antelope and elk. Um, and he's you know he swears by it. He's I think he's been there three times, been to Wyoming three times. So that may you know that's probably going to fall onto the into the equation too in terms of planning goes. And then you know you want to hit. California, right? If you ever, if the Rockies, you know, start looking, uh, or the Rosies that are available, California holds the only herd of tule elk. So that's another one. Yeah. But, yeah. You're, you know, you're talking, that's a once in a lifetime tag. Yeah. I, I wondered, I'm not super familiar with how, you know, how tough it is in California for a non resident. I, I got the impression <laughs> listening to some of your podcasts that it's, it's very challenging for for people who don't live there. <laughs> it's challenging, period. I mean, it, as a even resident, for somebody who lives there, yeah, I have. So right now, I have seventeen points. Um, I probably have. I'm going to say at least three to four years, at least. You know, I mean, luck of the draw is always there, but I, I forget what the percentage was this last year when I looked. I don't. I stopped applying years ago. I just buy the point. It's like, yeah, I'll go hunt. You know, wherever. But that, yep. and actually, I mean, it's kind of been a detriment because that's really what kept me out of elk hunting and not exploring out of state opportunities was, you know, not applying for it here. I'll get my deer tags and I'll go chase blacktail early season and mule deer, you know, late season. But yeah, I mean, the only place that they exist, I have to go after that tag at this point. So, um, so conservation, man, give us, you know, you're involved with BHA. So give us your outlook on conservation and the importance of, and you know, what we should be doing, what we could be doing better. You know, the routine, man, it's there. There's a couple of things that come to mind. Um, the number one thing, you know, I got involved in BHA for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to be active in helping others get, get involved in hunting and learn how to do it because I feel like fear and insecurity probably held me back for about a decade uh, and not just going ahead and asking the questions about how to get started and what to do, you know, and past that, 
you know, I personally, I have sort of, uh, there's a few things that I'm interested in in terms of conservation. One of them is no matter where I'm at or what type of hunting I'm doing, um, I try to carry out as much trash as I possibly can. It's incredible the amount of trash that people leave in our, in our public spaces. Uh, you know, and I actually, through listening to your podcast with, uh, with uh, my man Osborne Outdoors, um, you know, one thing I picked up from him was take a bag with you. <laughs> I'm just throwing all the trash in my pack uh, when I started. And then, you know, that's not the most friendly or, or efficient way to do it. And so I started taking a trash bag with me every time I went out and just filling it up with as much stuff as I could get, just trying to, you know, keep our, our spaces clean. Um, you know, I, I have tried to be a guy who gets, you know, at a bare minimum, I want to be a member of as many conservation organizations as possible. Um, you know, BHA is the only one that I'm really like boots on the ground active in currently. Um, but you know, my intention is to try to get, uh, a little more spread out, you know, the farther I get into it and just, you know, because, Sending the $25 in every year is, is not enough. You know, I buy my hunting license. I buy, you know, I, th I throw as much money as I can afford to at Texas Parks and Wildlife for the hunting season. Uh, and going forward, I'm going to buy that elk tag and whatever happens, happens. Um, but I just want to make sure that I'm a good steward um, for the land in terms of treating it well while I'm there uh, leaving it a little bit better than I found it and sort of instilling that same, uh, ethic in the people that I go with. So I feel like, you know, every little bit we can do, um, benefits that land and benefits the wildlife that live on it. Absolutely, man. Active participation. Cool, man. So it's, it's easy. To, it's easy to say that hunting is com conservation, yeah, uh, and just throw the hundred bucks at my at my hunting license every year. Yeah, it's a different situation to actually put, uh, you know, put action into, you know, put put action behind the words that I, you know, that are running out of my mouth. I so. mean, the active participation part of it for me is second to none. You know, pull the money away from the conservation organizations. Um, that you're donating to or buying a membership from however they, you know, whatever they call it at this point, you can't active participation in the whole thing is priceless, right? Just like you, you brought up Kevin and uh, you know, you look at what he's doing now. I mean, for a guy that's been hunting for as little time as he has the amount of active participation in cleanups and, and things of that nature that he's done, it outweighs I'm going to say 80% of the demographic, man. And that's probably might be a stretch. Somebody might be, you know, oh, come on. But you watch that guy enough, you start feeling a little bit bad about what you're not doing. Um, and I'm speaking out of out of experience watching Kevin roll. It's like, man, I got to up man, my he, game. He is always doing something. Yeah. He's always out doing something. Yeah, with a smile on his face. But again, that yeah. active participation, yeah. the $25 – Man, he's he's 
if that was an hourly rate, he made $10,000 in the last eight months. You know what I mean? That dude is yeah. rolling, man. Yeah. Rolling. So good on you, Kev. Yeah, it's, it's inspirational. Heck yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's priceless, man. And then, you know, packing packing everybody else's stuff out. It, that was one of the things that that bothered me with the elk trip, man, is there's no one else in the woods, right? I mean, we're coming across an elk hunter here, an elk hunter there. You know, you got the road hunters, blah, blah, blah. But I never saw a hiker. I never saw a backpacker. But I kept picking up trash. And that was one of the things that drove me crazy. And it's like, guys, what are we doing, right? We're out here chasing these animals. We get one month to do it. We're coming into this area that is virtually pristine. But we're the ones that are throwing the trash down, talking about where conservationist because we buy a hunting license and a tag is BS. It don't work that way because you bought a tag. You could drop your bottle, your aspirin, leave your toilet paper blowing across the, you know, across the, the aspen grove. It's just, I don't know, man. You're like you said, it's not enough. It is not enough to buy that tag. So cool, man. Um, let everybody know how they can get a hold of you um, if they're interested in talking about foundation strength and mobility, uh, where they can find you on IG, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my Instagram is Foundation Strength Training at Foundation Strength Training. Uh, my website is foundationstrengthtraining.com. Uh, there's a Facebook page that you know that the Instagram posts to, and that you know if if people are local to me. That's where they find out about the group workouts and, you know, and the stuff that I'm doing out in the parks and the community. Uh, but, you know, my, my Instagram, I'm, I'm pretty active. I'm posting workouts. I'm posting, you know, conservation stuff and hunting. You know, it's sort of my personal blog at this point. Um, in addition to, you know, a small amount of marketing for the, for the little side business that I got. Awesome, man. Well, Joel, I uh, greatly appreciate your time, man. We're going to uh, check back in with you here in a bit. And, you know, we'll be working on our Elk 2020. So I'll be looking at every channel I have to uh, to get my button gear. I want to be better than I was this year with it. So, so anything in closing, man, anything you want to get out there? Any uh, shout outs? <laughs> man, I, I'll say this. Um the i i have gotten more connected with people who have influenced my ability to be a good hunter and a good conservationist through um through the go wild app than almost any other place you know i got i think i got connected you know the 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 kong valley collective guys i got connected to you through them and the go wild app and listen to the podcast that's how i got connected to the guys locally with bha i mean it's um you know, I saw uh, Elk Calling Academy on there for the first time. And then I started going and looking at Michael's um, YouTube videos. And then, you know, a year and a half later, I'm standing in the Elk Woods uh, talking to some elk and convinced them that that uh, everything was fine and I was an elk. So uh, truly um, grateful for the for the content that all of you guys have put out um, because it's been very beneficial to me so heck yeah man i appreciate that i know those guys do too well good deal man uh again thank you very much for your time um congratulations on that utah elk hunt i'm a little bit envious uh but good on you man for for putting all that hard work and uh being able to lay one down there man appreciate it thank you for having me absolutely man it was a pleasure 
Thank you for listening. Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew with Sasquatch Fuel. If you're heading into the backcountry this season and you need some meals that don't bog you down, check out sasquatchfuel.com. Our 100% compostable packaging was designed to combat litter in the backcountry. For more information on conservation in action, head to sasquatchfuel.com. Hey guys, enter code Western Contours at checkout and save a few bucks off your order.